1: Hey, once again, welcome to the show. I hope you are ready to revel in wrong think because I have got, uh, I've got a truckload of it that I'm going to be sharing with you today and some good stuff too. Let's dive right in, shall we? By the way, you can always check out the show notes at thebryanhideshow.com. There you will find links to all the various authors, essays, and guests that I introduce you to. Caitlin Johnstone has uh, been uh, one of uh, one of my favorite contributors for a while. I, I would love to sit down and, uh, you know, just talk with her over a beverage at some point. I just I would love to pick this girl's brain. Now, this is not going to be possible because she is in Australia and, uh, and most likely locked down. But uh, she has a take on how to uh, how to assert your freedom, how to assert your autonomy and, it's, and she's relentless, which I really respect. There's a ton of stuff where she and I wouldn't line up, but I don't really care. Because I think she just has a really solid take on a lot of this stuff. And I saw an article from her. Um, I actually subscribe to, uh, to her, her daily or weekly emails. And they're always thought-provoking. She can be a little edgy, a little salty. So for some people, that, that might be a deal-breaker. It's not for me. It's you know it's it's fine. Um you know I've seen potty language before but uh, she just has a she has a real gift for sizing up the situation. And one of the questions that I know has been on a lot of people's minds is we're looking at what's going on around us and there are there are many different aspects here. You know it's it's not just the presidential election, it's not just the covid lockdowns. It's not uh, modern monetary theory. It's not just, uh, what's the latest controversy? Oh, the president threatening, look, I'm not going to sign the National Defense Authorization Act unless you guys uh, remove Section 230 from, I can't remember what the uh, Communications Act or Communications Decency Act or something. Anyway, this is the thing that would um, essentially make the the publishers or the, the platforms like Twitter and Facebook and other social media platforms liable for content posted on their um, on their platforms, we talked about this with James Chernowski from Young Voices just a few weeks ago. It's kind of interesting. I mean, I'm torn. On the one hand, I don't think government is the solution to you know solving how how do we get to, how do we get some kind of a resolution to this idea that social media should be. You know, vigorously censoring or, if not censoring, outright just massaging and manipulating the narrative in a direction of their choosing. Now, James Chernowski said, look, let the market do that. If Facebook is being oppressive, if Twitter is, is uh, you know, relegating you to outer darkness, fine, go, go to another platform. Parler, MeWe, I mean, there there are other platforms that are emerging. Yes, I understand. But they're not as big. They're not as popular. Well, it takes time to develop them. But the point is, you have choices. So I don't think this is where a government solution is necessarily going to, to uh, help us. In fact, somebody posted this on Twitter. I saw this earlier this morning. And, and it just said, get used to seeing this. If Section 230 of this CDA is repealed, you're going to see things that will say thank you for submitting your comment to Twitter. After our legal department has had a chance to look it over and, you know, to ascertain whether or not it passes muster, you'll be notified if and when it's ever posted. Cuz it was it would increase their their liability. See, that's the danger in using government as the solution. And and this is uh, and yet at the same time, I got to tell you, I don't want to I don't want to sound unpatriotic, but it kind of tickles me to see uh, the president um, bending Congress over a barrel, so to speak, with uh, with the idea that, look, I'm going to withhold this 700 plus billion dollar NDAA fund, you know, funding for military operations all over the world, unless you include this repeal of Section 230. I mean, it's not like they haven't done it to him, Right. Weren't they, uh, I think he was threatening to, to veto a bill last summer because they kept trying to tack on a thing. Well, we need to remove the names of anyone who was ever Confederate from any military base ever. <laughs> it's like, uh, you know, I mean, it, it makes for some great political theater. But at the same time, it's just this illustration of how petty everything becomes in politics. It's all a big power struggle. It's all about, well, how can we game the system, you know, for, for our advantage, and you have to ask, how much of that really, really matters to you? I have some specific problems with the NDAA in the sense that that is the act that, uh, that allows continued funding. And, and parts, sections of that funding are specifically uh, pointed at treating everyone, you, me, every person, as a potential terrorist and therefore enemy of the state. I don't see how functionally that's different than any totalitarian regime that's ever existed but you know when they say we can we can drone strike you anywhere in the world at any time without due process again that's that sounds like something stalin would have gone right on bro <laughs> go for it i need to get these uh, dissenters in line so how do you fix a system that is is so hopelessly Corrupted in so many different areas, i have the, I had a great conversation yesterday with Gary Welch on my show um and and we talk about you know ways that you and I can affect change at least within the the political system. but Caitlin Johnstone, I think, has a question that that is really worth considering here, and that is, is it possible to change the system with the tools that the system itself gives you? No when did you think of it in those terms. Suddenly, it's like, wait a minute, that doesn't make much sense. Why would the system give me the tools to change it? It's going to look after its own interest, and, and I've long maintained that's, that's kind of how voting is. It gives you the impression of doing something you know, substantive and real. Look, you just cast your vote. You exercised your franchise of democracy. Rah, rah, rah. But does it actually change something? You know, that's when eyes start to shift. Well, uh, looking around, no, look me in the eye and tell me, how, how does my vote matter? It, it, the truth of the matter is, in most cases, it really doesn't. And I think we're about to find out that uh, after this year's election, there's, there's going to be sufficient proof that, no, it really doesn't matter. It's just, it's a reassurance ritual. So that leaves us again with the question, so what do you do? If you're looking for solutions, what do you do? Well, this is where Caitlin Johnstone introduces us to the streetlight effect, which is when people look within the system for solutions to the system. And she starts with an example of what the streetlight effect is. And it's a joke. This policeman sees a drunk man crawling around on his hands and knees at night and asks him, hey, what's the problem? The drunk says, well, I'm trying to find my keys. So the officer gets down and starts searching with him. For a few minutes, they crawl around hunting for the missing key ring right there by the light of the street lamp before the policeman stands up frustrated. And he says, are you sure this is where you lost him? The drunk says, no, this isn't where I lost him. At which point the policeman says, well, then why are we searching here? And the drunk says, well, it's where the light is. (laughs) Now, that old joke is the source of the name for the streetlight effect, one of the many, many glitches in human cognition which causes us to tend toward misperception of our world and the way it's happening. Caitlin Johnstone explains this one describes our tendency to only look for things where it's easy to find them. And it distorts our understanding of subjects from science to big data analysis to history to even spirituality. She says it's like the scene from the children's animated movie, The Land Before Time, where one of the young dinosaurs knows the way to the Great Valley, But the others vote to travel a different direction to search for it, not because they have any reason to believe that they're going the right way, but simply because it's easier. One dinosaur says, I'm going the easy way, while the other yells out in desperation or exasperation, rather, but it's the wrong way. And Caitlin Johnstone says it's also like the way people keep trying to fight oppressive political systems by working within those systems. Arguing that it will be much easier to defeat the oppression machine using the tools the machine gave them. And she says, We're seeing this highlighted today in the controversy over Biden and company's nomination of Center for American Progress president and virulent left puncher Neera Tandon to direct the next administration's Office of Management and Budget. Now, Tandon has spent years doing nothing but advancing the most toxic elements of the Democratic establishment. And attacking the party's progressive base at every opportunity. Her nomination is probably the biggest middle finger Biden Corp could have possibly given to the Sanders supporters who elected him. Now, we'll continue this the other side of the break, but that streetlight effect, I want you to take it to, you know, not just to the presidential politics, but to other areas where you might be guilty of it, and I might be guilty of this as well. Why do we do things this way? Well, it's easier. Okay, but does it actually get you where you want to go? Well, no. Again, we'll be back with Caitlin Johnstone's essay, Just the Other Side of These Messages. Please stay with us.
0: This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show.
1: Once again, I am sharing with you what I consider some of the best hand-picked information for wrong thinkers or people who are willing to just question the narrative and boldly think for themselves. Act like autonomous men and women. This is an article from Caitlin Johnstone she published on her website. I'll have a link to it in the show notes, which you can find at the Brian Hyde show.com. The streetlight effect, when people look within the system for solutions to the system. She gives the example of Joe Biden nominating Center for American Progress President Neera Tanden to direct the next administration's Office of Management and Budget and talks about how This is is a huge blow-off to all the Bernie bros who, you know, got behind Joe and helped him, you know, become president. She says after months of lying to themselves that lifelong warmongering corporatist Joe Biden could somehow be pushed to the left by progressives in order to make voting for him seem more palatable, the incoming administration, she says, has been seemingly going out of its way to prove them wrong as in spectacular a fashion as you could possibly imagine with its nominees and transition team of war whores, corporate sociopaths, free speech opponents, and austerity enthusiasts. She uses a very colorful expression, which I'm going to uh, skip past, but basically tandem is the icing on a big steaming pile of something that nobody would want to take a bite of. But she says this was always how it was going to be. Believing anyone could move Joe Biden to the left is as foolish as believing anyone could move a mountain or a skyscraper or any other immovable object. She says if Biden were the sort of person who could be pressured into ending wars, reversing U.S. military expansionism, ending austerity policies and redistributing wealth, he never would have been permitted anywhere near the White House. He would have been replaced with a Kamala Harris or a Pete Buttigieg or any of the other endless army of stalwart establishment loyalists. She says the U.S. political system is not designed to be moved to the left, is not designed to facilitate a revolution. It's not designed to reflect the general will of the public in any way. She says the U.S. political system is designed to keep the public placid and obedient while the imperialists run the empire. Nothing else is allowed. Nothing else ever will be allowed. Self-described progressives who advocate supporting the Democratic Party while slowly taking it over from the inside and moving it to the left argue that doing this is much easier than trying to fight the system from the outside because activism isn't enough and the U.S. Constitution is written in a way that makes third-party voting unworkable. So they pour massive amounts of energy into supporting a political party that's expressly designed to ensure they never attain any of their goals. They're searching in the lamplight for keys that aren't there. They're walking away from the Great Valley because that direction is an easier journey. Now, this holds true for people on the right as well. So don't think, well, yeah, she's right. She's got these leftists all figured out. Caitlin probably leans harder to the left than to the right, but... What we're talking about here is defeating a system that presumes to rule all of us, left, right, center, everybody, according to its will, rather than recognizing that we, the people, are the source of all political power. We are the source of all legitimate power. So how do you defeat an empire? Caitlin Jenstone says, Caitlin Johnstone rather says, arguing that you should wage the revolution from within the system because it's easier than fighting the system from the outside. is kind of like saying you should journey to the top of a mountain by going downhill because that's easier than climbing. Sure, you'll meet up with a lot less less resistance, but that's not how you get there. It's the wrong way. Ruling power structures are all too happy to let us keep marching into the mirror maze of establishment politics, which always spits us out right back where we started. Tom Woods, by the way, has a marvelous way of expressing this in that he says, no matter who you vote for, you always get John McCain. In my home state, as we look at Mitt Romney, we go, yeah, that's kind of our, our equivalent of John McCain. She says, Caitlin Johnstone says, they'll let us do this until their blinkered agendas have turned this planet into a lifeless rock. This is true of U.S. politics. It's true of the political systems in any government which plays a significant, significant role in the globe-spanning U.S.-centralized empire. Yes, she says, the way to the Great Valley is far less easy than casting a few votes and standing AOC. The way to true revolution and drastic, meaningful change is not just challenging, it's a way that's never been traveled before by anyone. And she says it's going to mean trying things that are completely unprecedented, because we're trying to create a society that's healthy in a way that it's never been before. Now, pay attention, because what she's saying here should hopefully, you know, when she talks about uh, revolution, true revolution, she's not talking about violent overthrow and, you know, off with their heads kind of revolution. She's talking about freeing ourselves from the mental prisons that have been deliberately designed to keep us searching under the streetlight instead of where they actually are. And she talks about how important it is to wake up and then to wake up the others. Caitlin Johnstone says, only then will we ever stand a chance at using the power of our numbers to force real change. And until that happens... People are going to keep entering the mirror maze and never getting anywhere while the noose on our species gets tighter and tighter. Now, she doesn't mince words here. She says, the powerful are screwing us and there are more of us than there are of them. That's why we have a rigged political system. It's why plutocrats and government agencies pour immense fortunes and manpower into manipulating the way we think, act, and vote by mass media propaganda. It's what keeps us crawling around searching for keys that aren't there. She says it's not that you can't beat the machine. It's that you can't beat the machine using the tools the machine has given you. But the first step is getting people to stop searching under the streetlight for solutions, using those tools, and realize they're misperceiving the situation. We need to awaken people to the reality that the world is not happening the way they were taught in school. Maybe this is why I so relate to to how she approaches this subject. I feel like that's something I've been trying to do with myself as well as with my audience for about the last 25 years. Now, Caitlin Johnstone points out, luckily, with trust in the mass media at an all-time low and our ability to network and share information at an all-time high, we have every opportunity to begin doing that. She says we just need to stop pouring our energy in inefficient directions and strike while that iron is hot. Now there's an addendum that I want to add to this. Not every part of that battle is going to be political. You've heard me say before, politics is poison. It taints everything that it touches. And for a lot of people, like myself, that means I minimize my contact with it. Same way I would uh, minimize my contact with radioactive material. I don't want to build up too many, uh, you know, be exposed to too many rentkins, you know, and, and, and make myself sick. But it doesn't mean that I just live my life then in isolation, you know, hunkered down in a cave with my eyes tightly shut and my hands over my ears. I want to make a difference in this world, and I suspect that you would not be listening to this program if you did not feel some similar call sense of purpose or, or drive or duty in your own life to do the same. So take a look at this essay from Caitlin Johnstone. Give it some consideration. If you're serious about making a difference, and this includes in many different areas of life, one of the things we have to be aware of and have to be cautious that we're not falling prey to is that streetlight effect That keeps us working in unproductive areas simply because it's easier, and it gives the appearance of staying busy without actually accomplishing anything. All right, we've got some more great subversive material to share with you. We'll be back right after these messages.
0: This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show.
1: I don't know if you caught this. Hopefully you saw this. Uh, This was last week. Did you see where the Supreme Court finally stood up and said, hey, 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 it is not kosher to padlock churches and to, uh, to prevent them from meeting and worshiping. I think this was specifically um, aimed at uh, the New York governor who was uh, looking to, to shut down congregations, threatening to padlock churches, literally shut them down. And the Supreme Court, by a five to four majority, stood up and said, that is, uh, that's not good. And Jeff Tucker has a terrific article on the American Institute for Economic Research website which, uh, you know, understandably lauds, thank you, thank you, Supreme Court, for finally finding your feet and, and saying something about this, but also points out for many churches, it's too late. Here's what he has to say. He says, the Supreme Court has decided there's something not quite kosher about padlocking houses of worship or imposing extreme limits on religious gatherings, which amounts to the same thing, while bars and stores remain open. Judge Gorish wrote, under the governor's edict, and again, I believe this is Governor Cuomo in, uh, in New York, a 10-screen multiplex may host 500 moviegoers at any time. A casino, too, may cater to hundreds at once, with perhaps six people huddled at each craps table here and a similar number gathered around every roulette wheel there. Large numbers and close quarters are fine in such places, but churches, synagogues, and mosques... Are banned from admitting more than 50 worshippers, no matter how large the building, how distant the individuals, how many wear face masks, no matter the precautions at all. In Nevada, it seems it's better to be in entertainment than religion. Maybe that's nothing new, but uh, the First Amendment prohibits such obvious discrimination against the challenge of religion. Gore says the world we inhabit today, with a pandemic upon us, poses unusual challenges. But there is no world in which the Constitution permits Nevada to favor Caesar's palace over Calvary Chapel. And I apologize. I thought it was, uh, I, I know Governor Cuomo in New York had responded to this, but this was actually aimed at Governor Sislak in, uh, new, in Nevada, rather. I think this, uh, this uh, ruling has effect on both situations. And, and Jeff Tucker says, look, you probably consider this rather obvious There's a reason the right to worship is listed first in the Bill of Rights. So he says, thank you, Supreme Court, for doing what we thought was your job, even if the decision came about nine months late. He says the disgrace is not only that it took so long to act, but also that the ruling was so narrow, five to four. Four justices on the Supreme Court seem not to have even a rudimentary understanding of the Constitution. And Jeff Tucker says that is a chilling revelation. As for the churches themselves, he says, for many, this ruling might come too late. The mandatory closures were brutal. In San Jose, California, for example, Calvary Chapel was fined $350,000 for violating public health orders. Santa Clara County threatened the pastors with jail time for not following regulation. The court also issued a restraining order requiring the church to comply with public health orders. So what did this do to attendance? Well, Barna Research reports that between April and May, 32% of practicing Christians disclosed not going to church in person or online. 18% are donating less to their places of worship. Now, he says over Thanksgiving, he says he was deeply saddened to hear the story of one central Texas Baptist church that's been nearly gutted over this ghastly year of lockdowns. They were shut entirely for a month, partly due to fear but also because of a confusion over the law. People didn't know what was and what was not permitted. And also the pastor feared the press. For instance, what if someone took pictures of people gathering and then the media jackals started baying? So in that time, he said, people got used to not going. The choir disbanded. The choir director quit. The organist already experienced health issues, so he withdrew too, and there was no replacement. Today, that church is down in attendance by 75%. They still meet, but, with only, but only with one service where there used to be three to fit everyone in. One person stands up with a guitar and plays simple songs since he can't play what's in the hymnal. People saunter in, but it's just depressing. Most people have just stopped going. And why pay for services you don't use? The church is surviving financially, but that can't keep this up for too much longer. Everyone feels it. The end is nigh. Now, for many towns, Jeff Tucker says church is much more about, about much more rather than doctrine and belief. It's about community. This is the one time in the week when people check in on each other to find out community news, to hear about weddings and funerals. They find out who needs a visit at the hospital. They hear about widows rather at home who need friends. They see people who are visiting from out of town, especially on holidays. Even business gets done in the donuts and coffee hour after the services. It is the center of community life, a real source of stability in a chaotic world. And Jeff Tucker says, I reasonably assume that this case is one of many. It's a symptom of the shocking destabilization that's been inflicted on the whole country by governments at all levels. And he points out there's also a terrible psychological impact. Maybe you felt this yourself. He says, for, for many The church was a rock for generations, from birth to baptism to weddings to funerals. There's a ritual for everything. To stop participating would be unthinkable for most, even if they only end up at the church for special occasions. For many people who stop attending, just knowing it's there still provides comfort and security. But now, not so much. The church has proven to be as fragile as a locally owned business or the public school down the street. It can be crushed by executive edict. Once that connection to people's lives is broken, it's hard to repair. Now, religion in general was already having a hard time of it in the United States. He shares a couple of different headlines from Pew Research. In the U.S., decline of Christianity continues At a rapid pace. U.S. church membership down sharply in past two decades. That's according to Gallup. And the lockdowns will accelerate this trend. For some churches on the brink, those lockdowns were the final blow. And here Jeff Tucker asks the question, why did governments do this? He says, we all know the excuse, virus hunting. Instead of letting people take their own risks, politicians and their advisors decided that surely houses of worship were spreading the virus. Incredibly, in New York, Hasidic Jews, who heroically resisted at every step, were singled out by the mayor and governor, reviving medieval scapegoating myths. And what evidence is there that the Hasidic Hasidic services were spreading the virus with severe outcomes? There were none. Not one shred of evidence. So too with other religious events. Jeff Tucker says not one bit of evidence that he could find demonstrates that the worship of God in the presence of others would lead to death. And Many churches have openly defied the orders, and rightly so. He says, with all the carnage from these various stringencies designed to control the mostly uncontrollable, why focus on the tribulations of religious institutions? The history of liberty began with the idea of religious freedom the realization that no great calamity would befall society if people were allowed to worship as they pleased, then gave rise to all the other freedoms we took for granted until recently. So he says it makes sense then that the long road to recovering our rights would begin here. Now, I don't know, you, know, you may not be a religious person, and that is absolutely your prerogative. I don't want to make you feel guilty, and I certainly don't want to mandate, you better be in Sunday school, by gosh! even if it's virtually. This is one of the deepest matters of personal conscience that any one of us will ever face. But I absolutely believe, and this is just my own opinion, so you're free to reject it, and it's not not even going to hurt my feelings. I really believe that the cause of individual rights the cause of personal liberty, the cause of personal conscience, is something that, that God is very much a part of. I can't go into a lot of details here, but I've I've mentioned this before, and I think I'll mention it one more time. When I was standing there at Bundy Ranch on April twelfth, 2014, I came to understand that what was going on there was of great spiritual significance, more so than political significance. It wasn't just about this recalcitrant rancher who couldn't, you know, follow the BLM's rules. There was something, there was an element of the divine that was very, very evident at that time and place. And I know it doesn't make sense to everybody, I won't hammer it down onto your head to try to make you understand it. All I can tell you is I learned that day that God, in fact, is very interested in the cause of liberty and very supportive of it if we conduct ourselves in a manner befitting those who deserve to live in a state of liberty.
0: We'll be back in just a moment. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show.
1: By the way, I want you to check out that article from Jeff Tucker, which you will find in the show notes. This is the article I was referring to in the last segment. You can find the show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com, and I hope you will take the time to look at and even share some of these various articles. I, I love the idea of charity, and it's one of the things that to me makes Christmas time um, such a great time of year. This is when people, I don't know why, we, we tend to put uh, whatever shields we may have up for the rest of the year. When this time of year rolls around, even the uh, most bitter, you know, hardened non-believers find something in their hearts that, that softens and becomes a little more charitable. There's a great article on Reason.com from John Stossel about how private charity beats one-size-fits-all government. This is really good. That's why I wanted to share this with you. John Stossel points out many of us will give money to charity this month. He says Americans give more than any other people in the world. Good for us. 56 years ago, because American charities hadn't ended poverty, politicians said they would end it. So they declared a war on poverty. Well, that war so far has cost $27 trillion. Now, Stossel points out here, some people were helped, but the handouts also had a bad effect. In fact, he has a new video showing a moving graph of America's poverty rate. And it reveals that before the war on poverty began, Americans had been steadily lifting themselves out of poverty. Year by year, the number of families in poverty defined as earning less than three times what they need to feed themselves decreased. Then welfare began, and for about seven years, progress continued. But then, progress largely stopped. That downward-trending poverty line now rises and falls with economic conditions. In other words, America now has an underclass, generations of people who stay poor. Yaron Brook of the Ayn Rand Institute says welfare taught them they didn't have to work. Handouts perpetuate poverty, he says, because if you get a job, your checks get smaller. By the way, we're seeing this also across the nation with the people who choose not to work because the unemployment benefits are actually more than they could make working a job. One of the more interesting aspects of some of the lessons learned in 2020. Now, John Stossel points out this is why charity is better. Charities are free to help people who truly need help while giving a push to people who need a kick in the butt. Governments' one-size-fits-all rules discourage that. For instance, Stossel donates to a charity called the Doe Fund, D-O-E. He says it tries to break the devastating cycle of homelessness by teaching men to take pride in work. And many are helped. But not all charity helps. Facebook founder Mark Zuckerberg gave $100 million to improve Newark's public schools. And that money disappeared into the education bureaucracy. Education consultants and friends of politicians got some. Teachers union contracts grew fatter. But the public schools didn't get better. The performance of the students didn't get better. Stossel says this year's booming stock prices increased America's wealth gap. Billionaires got richer while store clerks lost jobs. Progressives gathered outside of Amazon founder Jeff Bezos' home and set up a guillotine. The message, behead the rich. They think that when Bezos makes millions, the rest of us have less. Now that's ignorant. He says all of our lives are dramatically better because of somebody like Jeff Bezos. Things just appear at our doorstep. They hire hundreds of thousands of people. They make it possible for poor people to make a living by selling me something that I want. Now, at this point, uh, John Stossel is interviewing Yaron Brook of the Ayn Rand Institute. And he pushes back here when Brook tells him this. He says, "But, but Bezos has so much when others have so little. And here's how Brook responded. He said, but it's his money. He created it. Once we start deciding what you can or can't do with your property, what we will get is extreme poverty for everybody. Only one system has brought people out of poverty, and that is capitalism. Stossel says, that's what I learned after years of consumer reporting. He says, consider three ways to help people, government, charity, and capitalism. Government is needed for some things, but it's inefficient, and its handouts encourage dependency. Charity is better because charities can make judgments about who really needs a handout versus who needs a push. But charities can be inefficient too. Oddly, he says, what helps people the most in the most efficient way is greedy, self-interested capitalism. Now hear him out here. He's quoting uh, Brooke from the Ayn Rand Institute saying, 250 years ago, almost all of us were earning what the United Nations today defines as extreme poverty, $2 a day or less. That was 94% of all people on planet Earth. Today, only about 8% are that poor. Why? Well, it's not because of charity and not because of foreign aid. It's by employing people that that poverty rate has fallen. Businesses are the most efficient when they ha- because they have the right incentives, rather. And they won't survive if they're not efficient. Of course, government has no such incentives, and charities can be mixed. So Stossel asks, rather, why do billionaires and entrepreneurs now rush to donate rather than doing what they're best at, innovating? And Brooke replies, they want to be liked. But they're against buying into false ideas, both economically and morally. They're acting against their self-interest and against all of our interests, including the interests of the poor. That's an interesting take. Kind of a, kind of a... Curious slant there, but, uh, but I think one worth considering. Okay, one final thing I wanted to share with you. Um, I hear a lot of people, you know, sound the battle cry, believe the science. That's, that's the battle cry for the people supporting the imposition of centrally planned lockdowns to agra- address the coronavirus. And there's an error in that thinking. And Isaac Morehouse has this great essay that explains what diet pills and persistent error in health and science have in common. And in a nutshell, it's uh, both benefit the ones that promote them at the expense of those on the receiving end. He says, earlier this year, I was doing a deep dive into virology. Now, this was before COVID, in an effort to solve his own health-related problems and mysteries. And he said, I've had the same experience I've had when I went deeper into any field, which is a realization that nobody in the field really knows what the hell is going on. He says, I don't know what viruses are or how they work exactly. No one seems to really But he says, I came across enough published work to discover current theories are insufficient to explain reality. The things observed and documented in the world would not be possible if the dominant theories were true. And he says, it's a disconcerting notion. An entire body of science with widespread and accepted beliefs, billions in money and man hours and real world implications could be operating partly or even mostly in the dark. Yes. In fact, he says, that is the norm in the history of science. Not the exception. Now, of course, people tend to respond to such claims with indignance. A common argument goes uh, something like this. Well, if a theory were incorrect and being incorrect had real-world implications, that theory would not persist. The fact that it does persist and so many experts and lay people alike believe it and billions are spent on the assumption that it's true must mean that it's true. So he says, let's see if we can disprove that argument. All you need to disprove a claim like that is a single example where it does not hold. Then it can no longer be used as a proof. And here's the example. Diet pills. Magic pills that make you thin have been around for a long time. The theories they're based on are faulty, and this faultiness has real-world implications. In other words, people buy the pills and don't get the results. Yet millions are spent on them, and they don't vanish. This clearly proves that a false theory with real-world implications for being false can persist. But why does it persist? And the answer is because people benefit. If an incorrect theory that leads to outcomes that disprove it can benefit people, they can keep on believing it for a very long time. So the people making and selling diet pills benefit in terms of money. The people buying them also benefit. They get to relieve some of the psychic discomfort about their weight and appearance by buying a pill and feeling like, well, at least I'm doing something. They're buying hope, trust in experts, marginal relief from feeling like they're not making progress, all the while avoiding the hard work. And so he says it persists. And the majority of theories in human health can be explained the same way. The more you dig, the more you find that almost all the dominant theories are incorrect. There are too many stubborn facts that contradict them, but they persist because it benefits the researchers to have a theory. It benefits the policymakers to have a specific target to which to direct money. And, of course, it benefits the public to feel safer, believing that the health troubles in the world are understood by experts and have cures. This is a fantastic article. I'll encourage you to read the rest of it, which you can find at the show notes at thebrianhide.show.com. Yes, it's going to push you a little bit beyond your comfort zone. Let it. You're a big boy or a big girl. You can handle it. Your mind is not a fragile thing that can't, uh, you know, break back from bumping up against uh, the boundaries or of the limits of of your knowledge. We're all that way. We just need to uh, act like it sometimes.